Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Well, reports abound about how COVID-19 pandemic fueled a surge in virtual outpatient visits. Providers in the acute care setting, like stroke, have spent the last decade perfecting the technology for diagnosis and treatment of patients from miles away. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we'll discuss the storied and evolving use of telemedicine in subspecialty neurological care. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in the Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I am very pleased to have Dr. Kawaja join me for today's conversation. Dr. Kwaja is Medical Director of the Telestroke Program and a Stroke Neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Dr. Kwaja, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Kwaja, I'm a baby boomer, and sadly, the number of people with Alzheimer's disease is expected to triple by 2050. A study published in Neurology in 2013 predicted that we'll need almost 20% more neurologists Uh, to meet demand by 2025. I guess we'll find out uh, in your conversation today how telemedicine may help us with this problem of a lack of number of neurologists that are out there. So with the first question, as an early adopter, your team recognized that telemedicine technology would be valuable to your practice. Can you brief me on your telestroke practice, how it began, and what you've achieved to date? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But before I do that, you're not that old. You're heading up a podcast, aren't you? <laughs> I'm that old. Yeah, that's got to count for something. <laughs> but yeah, we, um, you know, we started providing Telstroke almost 10 years ago. Uh, and interestingly enough, we started at non-Cleveland uh, Clinic hospitals. Uh, we were fortunate to have uh, consistent uh, neuro coverage uh, at our Cleveland Clinic hospitals. But there were other community hospitals that didn't really have consistent stroke coverage. And this can actually play a big toll uh, on the communities and also the hospitals. On one hand, those patients don't get the treatment they need or they're you know, bypassed or sent to hospitals outside their community. So Telstroke really helped us care for patients in their communities and helped ensure that they received a thorough uh, acute stroke assessment. And so we learned a lot as we experimented uh, with different aspects of the Telstroke program. Uh, as you might imagine, Telestroke is a really complex uh, service, especially when you're first starting out. There are tons of variables and choices. What equipment should I be using? How many doctors do I need? How do I document? How do I review images? How do I communicate my findings back? And how many layers of backup do I actually need? And the backup thing was really surprising because one of the things that we don't immediately think about is how uh, you know, emergent or how stroke isn't necessarily a scheduled disease and the calls can be really, really sporadic. You know, sometimes we have nothing and sometimes we get three or four at a time and we can't necessarily have patients just wait for us until we're done, you know, with our existing patients. So, you know, we needed to design a layered backup system that helps us push cases to the next available physician without any significant delay. And then after a few years of experience, we actually started to cover more Cleveland Clinic hospitals and found that our ED colleagues, hospital leadership, and non-stroke neurologists liked the service so much that we rolled the service out to almost every Cleveland Clinic regional hospital, including a site in Florida. And despite this massive expansion, we've been able to improve upon our treatment times, 
maintain safety and also create efficiencies that have enabled us to increase our capacity. So, you know, we're still in growth phase right now and we're really excited to grow. Well, I think you're the the person to answer this question from Telestroke. Your group has transitioned to the neurologic intensive care setting. Uh, tell us about that and, and what needs have been addressed uh, in this model. Yeah, this is really interesting because our neuro ICU docs actually participate in our Telstroke pool. So they came with tons of experience. And so they were very comfortable with the technology. And they themselves realized that this could be really useful in the neuro ICU. Uh, they became very comfortable assessing critically ill patients using, you know, the video conferencing tools that we had and basically used it to supplement overnight neuro ICU coverage. Traditional neuro ICU models were basically, you know, the docs would spend the whole night in the hospital, they're rounding. But when they do that, it kind of limits or it, it puts a bit of a strain on the system and you tend to need a lot more doctors. Using EICU, they were able to provide more coverage with less staff. And that resulted in a pretty significant cost savings and allowed expansion. And the most interesting part was is that there was no compromise to patient care. Uh, our neurointensivists basically studied the outcomes and found no increase in mortality or changes in length of stay or ventilator days. So this was a real value add for our neurointensive program. Excellent. And it sounds like this snowball is going down the hill and now you're moving it to less acute uh, settings, just the general inpatient consult service. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, our neurology colleagues certainly did an excellent job in spearheading this. Uh, you know, Dr. Andre Stoichi headed up this project. Um, you know, we're a large enterprise and we have lots of regional hospitals and they vary from very large to smaller community hospitals. And with that, we have very differing neurology needs. You know, we have a larger hospitals that have a lot of neurology consults. And then we have our smaller regional hospitals that might not have a lot of neurology needs. And so the staffing for that also varies. So this teleneurology program was created and fine-tuned over the last year uh, that basically couples a telemedicine presenter uh, with a neurologist and allows the team to perform a really good neurological assessment at some of our smaller regional hospitals. And, and this has really helped us work smarter rather than harder because before our neurologists were trying to juggle clinic and then drive across town to different hospitals. Now they can just beam in where needed. And um, it's good for the doctor and good for the patient. Uh, neurologists can screen patients and determine if the evaluation and treatment they need is possible where they are. And if not, they can be easily transferred to one of our larger centers. You know, one of the goals in teleneurology and telestroke is actually, you know, in addition to, of course, providing excellent patient care, is to keep patients in their communities and prevent unnecessary transfers that we tended to do a lot prior to telemedicine. So, you know, one question we should ask ourselves is, you know, where else could we, you know, use telemedicine? I think right now we've done a good job in using it uh, in the EDs. We've been, you know, we've done a good job using it in the outpatient space, even on the inpatient space in terms of kind of, uh, you know, pushing a cart around and then, uh, you know, there's this whole other segment, uh, like our mobile stroke unit. But we've done one innovative thing at Cleveland Clinic, and that's the development of our M80 unit, which is basically a completely connected and hardwired unit. And the benefit here is, is that instead of pushing a cart around and connecting with the patient, the patient's room is actually connected. So any provider at any point in time, you know, without any geographic uh, limitation can actually beam in and connect with the patient and talk to them. 
And this becomes particularly important for our surgeons. You know, many of our surgeons are quite mobile. They'll operate in one area and then they go to the next hospital and they're operating there. And connected rooms such as M80 allow those surgeons to uh, connect with their patients, to check on them and to ensure the plan of care is going as scheduled. And so this is something that's really innovative and it becomes even more important in the times of COVID-19. You know, obviously we want to take care of patients, but at the same time, we want to protect our caregivers. We want to ensure that we're not having to go into the room unless it's absolutely necessary uh, to minimize exposure. And so connected rooms like these avoid us pushing robots in, bringing robots out, having to clean uh, you know, these robots continuously and help minimize uh, exposure. So technologies like these are, I think, of the future. And I think in, you know, as hospitals uh, continue to evolve, I think we're going to see a lot more connected rooms. So our colleagues in neurophysiology, I understand, have also uh, started to adapt this uh, technology. Tell me about that a little bit. You know, we've learned that virtual health is not just a face-to-face encounter. You know, Dr. Imad Najam and his epileptologist partners are really, you know, they're, they're experts in this. And they've been able to leverage their experience to offer a host of services, uh, including direct patient evaluations, either in the inpatient or outpatient space, uh, or running a virtual patient management conferences. These are really in-depth conferences that help determine if patients are candidates for highly specialized epilepsy surgery. And the best thing about these is that it doesn't require any patient travel, and it doesn't even require the patients to come to Cleveland to have the surgery. So these patients can benefit from these conferences and and have surgery in their communities. And uh, they've also been able to uh, create, run, and manage entire EMU programs, everything from design to uh, training the technicians. What other areas of neurologic care do you see benefiting from telemedicine-enabled care? I think the list would probably be a lot shorter if we said what doesn't require telemedicine, but other areas that uh, you see moving this direction? Absolutely. I think, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's so much potential, especially within the neurological uh, space. You know, we've just scratched the surface with telestroke, with teleneurology. Now we're seeing, you know, teleneurophysiology really uh, doing great things in telemedicine. And now there's so many patients across our nation that don't have access to some specialists. Sometimes they're forced to travel long distances just to see someone. And this is not only disruptive to the normal routines, but it can be very costly, not just money spent on travel, but income lost being out of work. And as we continue to gain experience and experiment within virtual health, I'm really eager to see what comes next, particularly in the management of movement disorders, such as Parkinson's disease. You know, I think, you know, medical management of these patients is very, very complex. You know, when they're hospitalized, sometimes their medications need to be changed. And then as they transition to the outpatient space, you know, all of this can severely uh, affect, you know, the disease progression. And, uh, and we've seen that, you know, one of the most common uses of telemedicine in the neurospace is actually the management of movement disorders, particularly Parkinson's patients. So I'm really eager to see, you know, what we can do there. And I'm also, you know, really excited to, to see what we can do with uh, telepsychiatry. I think there is significant potential. There are a lot of needs, both in the inpatient and also in the outpatient space. And uh, I think we have a lot of uh, potential uh, to take care of a lot of patients in that space. So what tips would you share with those who are really just beginning to use the technology or are looking to expand beyond the outpatient setting? I think it's really important for hospitals or programs and physicians um, to ensure that telemedicine is actually right for the patient. 
we should always keep the patient at the center of these decisions. Telemedicine will never replace a neurologist. You know, it won't replace our, you know, reflex hammer, tuning fork. I mean, it, there's just too much in neurology. Instead, telemedicine is a tool that we have at our disposal, but it is a great tool and it allows us to reach more patients in a safe and reliable way. I've always encouraged people to contact me if they have any questions, you know, about telemedicine, if it's, you know, if telestroke would be right for them, if teleneurology would be right for them. And I always enjoy talking to some of our other subspecialty colleagues to see, you know, what they might be able to offer and if there's anything that they think would be good for patients. And the other thing is, is, you know, sometimes it makes sense to start your own program and sometimes it makes sense to let an experienced program, you know, such as Cleveland Clinic participate in the care of their patients. You know, we never take a cookie cutter approach to patient care and always welcome discussions to see what's best for the patient. So I assume that COVID has accelerated everything and patient buy-in as well. Have you seen that, that patients are much more readily willing to uh, go to do virtual visits? Absolutely. I think before it was interesting, you know, both for providers and for patients. I think, you know, we were, you know, well adapted and very experienced in using Telestroke. So for us, transitioning to, you know, almost full-time virtual health was really easy. But for many patients, it wasn't. And many other providers, you know, within Cleveland Clinic, they were kind of forced into it. But just being forced into it, I think, really helped patients and providers both realize what the value of telemedicine is. That it's certainly, again, it's not going to replace, a, a, you know, an office visit. But there are many indications where uh, telemedicine suffices. And it helps us, you know, take care of the patient. It helps patients learn what they need to do. It helps them understand what's going on. And it really doesn't disrupt their day. I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing that patients are slowly trying to trickle it back into the office, which we expect. Um, I don't think telemedicine necessarily is right for everybody. There are some people who just don't like it. But I think for the vast majority, I think they're seeing, you know, the value of it. And I think they I think they're realizing that there are many uh, cases where it's appropriate for them. Uh, just as the patients will learn, I, you know, I'm hoping that we're going to continue to learn uh, and have more offerings for our patients. So they talk about Zoom fatigue. Uh, is there a sweet spot for practice-wise for telemedicine, for the physician, for the patient? Is it, you know, physicians do well if 50% of their practice is telemedicine and above that it's, it's an issue or does that data not exist? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I think it's dependent on the physician. You know, there are many physicians who do this full time. And there are some physicians who don't do any of it. And then there's everyone in between. So I really, it depends on, you know, you know what you're looking to do. I think, you know, Zoom and, and virtual health, you know, it addresses something that's really important, you know, within healthcare, that's burnout. Uh, I think a lot of physicians, you know, they tend to get burnt out because of increasing service responsibilities, uh, increased patient care responsibilities. And virtual health is just another way for us to kind of combat that in the sense that, you know, we are no longer tied to our offices. So we save time with commutes, you know, uh, you know, when it comes to childcare, sometimes it becomes very easy because even if you're at home and you're seeing patients, you know, you can have your children, you know, maybe in a different room and, and still feel comfortable that you can get your job done while, you know, keeping an eye on them. So I, I think that there are a lot of benefits here, you know, in terms of fatigue, that's always going to come. I, I think that if we don't implement telemedicine correctly, um, if you don't implement anything correctly, it's bound to cause fatigue. It's bound to kind of lose its appeal. 
uh, both for providers and patients. So, Dr. Kwaja, thank you very much for joining me. It's an exciting time in virtual care delivery, and I look forward to seeing what your team does next. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.